0: Hey, folks, just a minute of your time before we start. We've got another episode of What It Takes coming up, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and this series in particular. If that's you and you're looking for a competitive advantage, you need to become a member of GTM Squared. We offer individual and enterprise subscriptions so you can share it with your team. We've got our end-of-year discount as well. If you become a member of GTM Squared, you're going to get 50 bucks off your membership by using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. We work tirelessly to give you information that will help you grow your market share and grow your business. So come join our community, support good journalism, and find your competitive edge. Go to gtm.square.com and use the promo code PODCAST for $50 off a yearly membership. And finally, a huge thank you to GE for sponsoring this podcast. You know, GE is a big company. But they have a startup mentality when it comes to developing energy storage. And they've got this new energy storage system called Reservoir. GE's Reservoir helps harness and store the power of solar so it's available even when the sun isn't shining. And that's the power of power. That's the power of being able to innovate inside a large company and act like a startup. So... You can get 15% extended battery life through using Reservoir, and the battery storage system enables energy for when it's needed most, whether it's raining, hailing, sleeting, or snowing. GE's Reservoir helps keep the lights on. So that's good for you if you're a developer. It's good for you if you're a utility. Uh, It's good for everybody, and it helps us get more renewable energy on the grid. Learn more at ge.com slash energy storage. This week on What It Takes, the origin story of Wonder Capital, how three friends took on the quirky complexities of commercial solar and challenged the solar banking paradigm in the process.
1: That is what a startup is to me. It's the, you know, 50 or 100 people who can move a multi-billion dollar industry in a way that an incumbent with thousands of people and multitudes of resources cannot. And then um, figuring out the problems against which uh, that tool would be useful has been like another multi-year exercise.
0: We're going to hear from Wonder Capital CEO Brian Bersick. He'll talk about why he would consider himself a failure if Wonder isn't supporting billions of dollars in projects and materially impacting nationwide carbon emissions. hey everybody and welcome to another edition of what it takes an interview series produced by Powerhouse and Green tech media in this series we hear from founders of the most influential clean energy companies about their backgrounds their passions their struggles their deals their management philosophies and their near-death experiences this week powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch talks with Brian Beersick the CEO of Wonder Capital. Since its launch in 2014, Wonder has exploded onto the solar scene, using the software tools of FinTech to help grow clean tech. Now, before we get started, uh, we need to be transparent with our listeners. Many of you may already know, Wonder Capital has been a longtime sponsor of our other podcast, The Interchange, and we've worked with them on some original custom podcast episodes. Uh, This is not sponsored. This interview and the Powerhouse series uh, in general is purely editorial in nature, and, and none of the decisions we make here as part of this series are dictated by sponsorship. So just wanted to draw that line for you and make it clear. This conversation with Brian Biersick was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters, In Oakland, Uh, to learn more about future speakers and attending a live event, go to powerhouse.fund, that's F-U-N-D, powerhouse.fund, and click on the events tab. So let's embark now on the wonder journey. My Interchange co-host, Shail Khan, begins with an overview of the company's impact on the market, and then Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch takes over. Thank you. Well, if
2: there's one truism in solar, it's this. Commercial solar is hard, and if commercial solar in general is hard, then small commercial solar is damn near impossible. Let me back up for a moment. I started closely tracking the solar market in the U.S. in 2008, which I think might have been the most important year for solar in U.S. history, that was the year that, in response to the financial crisis, Congress passed a series of bills to stimulate the economy. Included in one of those bills was an eight-year extension to the Federal Investment Tax Credit, taking it from expiring in 2008 to 2016, which provided – absolutely needed policy certainty to this nascent market back at that time. It also temporarily enabled that tax credit to be refundable for cash, which alleviated the worst impacts of the financial crisis on the market, namely that nobody was making any profits and nobody had any tax liability. Now, up to that point, the thing that you need to know is that commercial solar had actually been the strongest market for solar we had in the U.S. The majority of solar that we were building up to that point had been for commercial and industrial customers, thanks to the declining cost of panels and to innovations like Sun Edison's introduction of the, the solar PPA for customers. So the result was that commercial solar had been really strong. So you might have thought that we extend the tax credit out another eight years, the primary result would be a huge boom in commercial and industrial solar installations. Instead, what actually happened is that commercial solar basically plotted along, grew incrementally but not substantially for years, while meanwhile the residential solar market absolutely took off and the utility-scale solar market absolutely took off and basically left commercial solar behind in the dust. So what happened? Well, it turns out that scaling commercial solar is incredibly difficult. Every customer is unique and they demand unique treatment but the individual project sizes don't enable that kind of a high-touch transaction cost, so you get buried in paperwork and process, and it makes projects take too long. It makes them unprofitable. Perhaps the biggest challenge is financing. You have millions of unrated, non creditworthy purchasers with specialized real estate situations, accounting oddities, and limited understandings of solar contracting. And you can see why this is difficult to do profitably at scale. These problems are hard enough when you're trying to sell to Walmart rooftops, but they're exponentially more complex when you go down market, which isn't to say that nobody's tried. Over the years, there have been many challengers who've boldly claimed to finally crack the code on the commercial solar market. Without picking too hard on a company that basically doesn't exist anymore to defend itself, let me just read you a brief excerpt from an article in 2015 about a SolarCity press release. The article says, on Tuesday, the country's largest solar installer, California-based SolarCity, declared it had figured out how to install solar panels atop small and medium businesses while also turning a profit, potentially opening a market estimated to be worth at least $10 billion a year. Then there's a quote from Lyndon Rive, the CEO of SolarCity, who said, when you fly into any airport, you see all these industrial areas and small warehouses with small businesses, and there's no solar. We now have a solution that makes it cost-effective. So SolarCity had cracked the code, not actually. In reality, neither SolarCity nor anybody else had really figured it out. Um, So the market has continued to sort of plod along, generally speaking, with a residential solar market that has seen an enormous amount of innovation, utility-scale solar market that has seen an enormous amount of innovation, and a CNI solar market that has largely been stuck in the past. In my opinion, there are relatively few exceptions to that statement, but one of those exceptions is thanks to Brian Bursick, the CEO of Wonder Capital. Wonder is taking a novel approach to solving the financing portion of this equation by connecting accredited investors directly with portfolios of specially vetted solar assets. And at least so far, it seems to be working. Wonder financed over 33 megawatts of solar in the first half of this year, which puts it up in the upper echelon of CNI solar financiers nationally, including some really big incumbent players. So, to me, the most impressive entrepreneurs are the ones for whom the bigger the challenge, the more they want to go after it. And I, as much as anybody, certainly appreciate the magnitude of the challenge of figuring out how to take advantage of the millions of commercial rooftops that should have solar on them. Uh, and so I appreciate the magnitude of the challenge that Brian and Wonder are tackling. And I truly hope that they're the one who has finally figured out how to crack the code. No further ado, Emily Kirsch interviewing Brian Bersick.
3: So, before we start, two things to note uh, that are unique about Brian and Wonder. One, Wonder advertises on every podcast that I listen to. I don't know how you know what I listen to, but literally everyone, it's like Wonder Capital. You we just track
1: you. We've got a pixel on you, and then we advertise anywhere you listen.
3: You're, you're doing a good job. Number two, if you're listening with kids, They're going to know the F word by the end of the show. Brian swears a lot. So um, if you don't want your kids to learn these words, just turn the podcast off now. Okay, but those are the two things that are unique about Wonder and Brian before we start. Um, But like every other episode of What It Takes, (laughs) let's begin, Brian, with a little bit about who you are, where you come from. Um, Yeah, let's take, take us way back to where you grew up.
1: Sure. Um, so I grew up in Pittsburgh, a little bit outside of Pittsburgh. Um, I was in a big Irish Catholic family, had like 20 plus first cousins within a couple miles where I lived.
3: Do you know uh, the exact number? Is it just like somewhere above 20?
1: There's some family members that include other people and don't include others. So I'd hate to put a hard number on it, but uh, it's in the mid, it's in the mid twenties. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I Was raised by a corporate litigator um, who uh, basically, um, along with showing me a lot about how to work really hard and how to be a good man, also uh, required that every conversation in our household um, be one that was dictated by strict logic and a series of well-supported arguments in the way that a lawyer would want. At what
3: age was this starting? Oh,
1: immediately. Immediately. I mean, I I don't remember being three and four, but I can only presume. Um, But, you know, in my house, if you wanted on Thursday to go to a different movie or on the weekend to go to a restaurant, you had to lay out like a very compelling case supported by evidence that may very well be cross examined. Um, And then uh, my mom uh, started a uh, what is now a national nonprofit at the time was Pittsburgh based um, now called National Pancreas Foundation. Um, and so, uh, I had kind of this hard charging, um, you know, um, kind of stereotypically ambitious, uh, parent, and then a a really ambitious parent that kind of took that a different direction with some heart and some entrepreneurship.
3: What did you learn about entrepreneurship as a kid from your mom?
1: Honestly, I think the biggest thing that, um, I find talking to fellow founders is just that they thought it was possible. Just the idea that you could start something from scratch and make it into something meaningful is, I think, not inherent or obvious. Um, And uh, it took me a little while to figure this out, but I'm fairly certain that my willingness to jump into the startup space was because I had seen her succeed.
3: Nice. What were you like in middle school and high school?
1: Mm, um, I was the secret nerd amongst the jocks and the secret jock amongst the nerds. Um, and and did not feel particularly comfortable amongst uh, any of those crowds, um, so uh, ended up um, you know avoiding my academic friends in social scenarios and and secretly spending a lot of time um, with my with my nerds my fellow nerds uh, before I got comfortable, frankly, repping myself as such.
3: Um, and in high school, I heard that you took all the math. Classes possible in high school by the time you were in the ninth grade.
1: That is correct. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was a serious math nerd. Um, I was a math and physics guy and, uh, yeah, I ended up going through, uh, AP calculus BC, um, as a, as a freshman in high school and had to go to a bunch of college classes locally to, to finish my math education. Um, But ended up going to a liberal arts school, Williams College, because of, as we talked about before, a really formative experience senior year with creative writing that kind of sent me on a totally different path. Tell us about that. So before I took this course, I really didn't understand the value of qualitative things. Um, Like, I literally thought it was really dumb that you could write an essay and that a different teacher could give you a different grade in it. Like, that... That violated my sense of like <laughs> um, things being right in the world. And I love the specificity um, of uh, quantitative subjects. And I took a creative writing class my senior year as kind of a toss-off senior year elective and um, had this transformational teacher that I still am in touch with um, and opened my eyes up to the, the, the beauty of, uh, of, of the gray areas in the world.
3: What did you study then in college? Where'd you go? What'd you study?
1: Yeah, I went to Williams College, which is, um, for folks that don't know, uh, a small Northeastern liberal arts school, kind of similar to Amherst or Swarthmore or Wesleyan. If folks have heard of those places. And uh, chose that school actually largely because there is nothing to do there and the social scene is weak. Um, because in a rare bout of self-awareness as a 17-year-old, I knew that if I went to some of the other schools that I was looking at, um, that I just wouldn't dedicate myself as much. And so I effectively locked myself up in northwestern New England, uh, northwestern Mass, for uh, for four years in order to uh, force myself to, to do a lot of work. Um, once I was there, and kind of the, one of the reasons I went to a school like that, I just took everything, um, everything that wasn't available in high school. I was soaking up uh, history of science, sociology, Religious studies, uh, physics, um, some math, Um, and I ended up getting to junior year and just not really having a major. And so, looking at what I had taken and trying to figure out what I was closest to, and so I was closest to this kind of political science, philosophy, econ major. Uh, There was a hybrid of all three called political economy, uh, which is actually uh, for folks that are interested uh, a well-used term in the 18th century. Adam Smith's uh, treatise is called a treatise of political economy, Um, but the only other place that has that degree is Harvard. And it's kind of this weird combination of the reality of politics, the philosophy that underpins the things we should care about, and then the economic realities that inform some of those decisions. And it was joint taught by professors of all three disciplines.
3: And with that degree, did you know what you wanted to do after college?
1: I didn't have a damn clue (laughs) what I wanted to do after college. Um, I was uh, daunted by the... um, the, the number of options um, after going through an experience in which I felt like the, the path of success was well defined. Um, I kind of visualize it as this relatively small fast flowing stream in which in you know elementary school and middle school and high school and to some extent college, it's very clear what one should do to be a well respected member of a community of a family, you get good grades and you go to a good place and you get the right degree. And then you hit this point at which the aperture spreads out to this wild, um, you know, separation of tiny little trails. And um, honestly, I, I kind of fell into going to uh, Bain and Company in New York, which ended up being a great experience uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but that was really a capitulation to not knowing what I wanted to do and feeling like joining Bain or something similar. And I. I I put law school in this category, for example. It's really just kicking the can down the road. It's doing another thing that society says or your family says is valuable and not having to deal with that, you know, outrageous, diffuse number of things that you could possibly do.
3: Um, So how long were you at Bain and what were you doing?
1: Yeah, I was at Bain for two years. Um, I started on the consulting side, working for folks like uh, American Express and Merck and Avon. And then um, my last stint at Bain was on the private equity side. So I was looking at big kind of private equity buyouts. Um, And then I joined a, I basically decided that big companies were broken and terrible. Um, One of the things that I loved about economics was the math. And the math has all these assumptions that basically 20th century economics is all about, um, you know, breaking down, but things like perfect information, right, and efficient markets. And um, it seemed to me as though the delta between my academic understanding of why capitalism works and what I was seeing inside of even these vaunted American institutions of business was just night and day. Um, You know, politics, um, of course, but more than that, just really good, smart people in roles where they just couldn't seem to do the things that obviously were the things they should do. Um, And so I had thought about, you know, law and and politics and a few other options. And to some extent um, leaving Bain, which was very much big corporate um, work and joining Village Ventures, which was a, a kind of a Bain alum uh, venture capital firm in New York City, was my last attempt to see if capitalism was in fact the dynamic force that I thought it was. And I thought if I could find it anywhere, it would be inside of tech startups. And that ended up playing out. Um, but to some extent, leaving Bain and going to uh, venture was a last ditch effort to make sense of capitalism.
3: And did you make sense of capitalism?
1: I don't know. We're trying to. <laughs> You know, I would have thought a projected seven and a half percent to like help climate would be like a little more popular than it is. So I'm not sure if I fully under it, understand capitalism. More, more podcast ads. More podcast ads. Apparently, <laughs> um, yeah. I think um, what I ended up falling in love with was that I think a student of history would look at the last, let's say, 50 years of economic history in in developed economies and determine that the best Archimedes lever against damn near anything is a kind of highly capable small group of extremely committed people there's a great margaret mead quote about this if anyone in the crowd happens to know it Uh, but it's something like i'm paraphrasing terribly um you know um small groups of extraordinary people like are the only things that ever change the world That's really bad paraphrasing. I'm sorry, Margaret Mead. Um, (laughs) but, uh, I bought into that narrative and I continued to buy into it. And so, um, yes, I feel as though that is to the extent that we have it here in the U S. Um, I think that is what keeps our capitalism dynamic.
3: What was it like when you were at Bain and then at the venture fund, did you feel like you were living the life that you wanted for yourself or were you still living the life that others expected of you?
1: Yeah, um, so going back to my framing of the stream uh, and its reliance on external validation and the way that I framed it, um, I think like a lot of people that are in this um, you know, ambitious, kind of get the right grades, go to the next step mindset, um, I was mainly motivated by external factors, extrinsic motivation. Um, deeply seated in my parents, but I think also informed by you know, social norms. And I realized at Bain, um, but probably even more so in the first couple of years of a, of, um, a venture capital career, that that was not satisfying, um, that that was not going to lead me where I wanted to go. And so I uh, deliberately broke down my extrinsic motivation Uh, in order to build something that looked like intrinsic motivation. And what was interesting about that, and a cautionary note for folks who are endeavoring to do the same, is uh, there was probably a 12 to 18-month period in which I had broken down my extrinsic motivation and had no longer sufficiently created my intrinsic motivation. Um, And this was, uh, and I'm sorry, Matt Harrison, Bo Buddy, if you're listening, Um, but my third and fourth year at the venture firm, um, you know, for me... And the way that I judge myself, I was mailing it in. Um, and I was trying to figure out what motivated me in a positive way in the way that I'd been kind of reactionary or externally motivated in the past.
3: Mm-hmm. Was it, what was like, what was your mental state at the time? What was it like being in that place for that long? That's a long time to, it was to tough. feel that way.
1: Yeah, it was, it was pretty brutal. Um, I think my wife will tell you that she thought about leaving me during that period and also, was concerned that perhaps I was an alcoholic. Um, probably shouldn't say that on a podcast. That's okay. We've talked about alcoholism before. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, don't worry. I'm just Irish Catholic. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, it was a dark period. I would kind of do what I needed to do to not get in trouble, which is the worst possible way to work. Um, and... Um, yeah, was not improving myself and growing, which felt like dying.
3: How did you come out of that?
1: Um, I ended up getting um, really excited about actually operating a business. Um, actually getting, the way I think of it as, is, is getting really good, and I'm not really good yet, but I'm trying to get better, Um, but being really good at taking small groups of extraordinary people and doing amazing things, right? Like that is what a startup is to me. It's the, you know, 50 or hundred people who can move a multi-billion dollar industry in a way that an incumbent with thousands of people and multitudes of resources cannot. Um, And so that provided hope as a tool. And then um, figuring out the problems against which Uh, that tool would be useful has been like another multi-year exercise.
3: So going from having this realization that the venture fund is not where you were fulfilled and challenged, uh, how did that eventually turn into wonder capital?
1: Yeah. Um, So actually when I was at the venture firm, um, I used to host these office hours on Friday mornings where anyone could come and, and pitch me whatever they wanted to for 20 minutes. And my now co-founders came in on a lark um and pitched me this nights and weekends project that they'd been working on and um i actually thought that the idea was shit but the product was amazing uh, i can't believe that's the first
3: time you've sworn on this podcast <laughs> after my warning but <laughs> go
1: know. go on i apologize no 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 um, we're good <laughs> so uh their idea the the business idea they had was, was, was bad, but their execution was of such an insane quality that um, we started spending time together because I was honestly just very impressed by them. And then as I got to know them better, the thing that, um, that really struck me was Dave, our CTO, and Sam, our chief product officer um, and chief designer, they're both extraordinary at what they do but they're also thoughtful about the way in which what they do interacts with the rest of the business and the rest of the product. And they're really capable thinkers across the breadth of what we do. And I just hadn't seen a lot of people that combine that vertical deep expertise and also this kind of thoughtfulness um, in a more horizontal way. And so we just became like the best of friends. And one of those people that you always say, hey, when the, the timing works out, it would be great to work together. So fast forward a few years, and Dave, now our CTO, um, uh, and Sam had actually both had an exit of a company they had started. I think Wonders, their fourth company, having co-founded together, uh, the two of them. And uh, Dave um, kind of found himself in a similar place uh, as to where I was as it relates to what do I really care about? Um, I've had some nice successes. What is the bulk of my working life going to be? What is worthwhile for me to work on for 10 or 15 years or 20 years or the rest of my life? And so a year before we started Wonder, he actually got conviction about solar and went and joined the DOE's national lab at Lawrence Berkeley and uh, was working with pg and on demand response, uh, basically helping them to refine their software and ran headfirst into the commercial solar um, you know, problem. Uh, the lack of growth in commercial solar relative to resi or utility over the last five years is incredibly stark. Um, and uh, the more that he talked to folks at the DOE, financing, there are a few other challenges associated with um, commercial. I don't want to pretend there aren't. But financing seemed to be the primary issue. And he knew that I'd spent a bunch of time at, um, at my venture firm working on software-enabled commercial lending. And so he brought that to me, and um, that was the start of what ended up being Wonder.
3: When did you actually incorporate?
1: We incorporated on April 23rd of 2014, but we'd been working on it for about three months um, together full-time, and we'd been working on the idea behind it in a relatively full-time way for about nine months.
3: And then what did it look like? The very early days, it's the three of you... Uh, You launch, are you, where are you working? Are you paying yourselves?
1: What does it look like in the early days? We are not paying ourselves. Um, We are working out of wherever people will let us hang our hats. So I actually was in this like terrible, like slapstick apartment building complex with a weird uh, board meeting room in like the common spaces that we would often use for meetings. Um, So yeah, we were were shoestringing it in a meaningful way.
3: Nice. Uh, Tell us about raising capital. How much did you raise? When, from who?
1: Yeah. um, So it was about a year before we raised any money. And the impetus was actually hiring our first employee because we were like, he's an employee, not a founder. We actually have to pay him. Um, so we raised 255000 in a friends and family round in, um, I guess it would have been January of 2015 or so. Um, and
3: the entire year leading up to that, you hadn't, the three of you didn't pay yourselves anything?
1: Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, and after that, uh, we went to a, uh, we, we called it the three musketeers comp strategy, which uh, we've always had totally transparent comp. Everyone at Wonder knows what everyone makes at Wonder always. Um, it was really easy at the start because we all made shit and it was all the same, um, which it just feels better when you're offering someone a really terrible salary to be like, that's what I make. And they're like, that's what you make. And you're like, yeah. And then sometimes they say yes. Um, so uh, we all made the same for a while. And then about a year after that, so I guess that'd be like February March of 2016, we raised uh, 875000 in what we called a, a, a seed round. I know in California that might not qualify. <laughs> That's a pre-seed now. Um, and then uh, about a year after that, we raised $3.6 million in an A. And then uh, about t- 14 months after that, raised uh, $12 million in a B.
3: And that was the most, the latest round was the $12 million yes. in equity and then another $100
1: million. That's right. Yeah, $100 million to finance projects and $12 million for the corporate entity.
3: And just to go back to the early days, so you're paying everyone on the team the same amount. Correct. How many people were, were making that amount?
1: I think we got up to seven or eight people before we had to create a real comp structure.
3: And can I ask how much that was at the time?
1: I believe it was 50 grand.
3: I got it. Um, and at what point were you, were you always the highest paid person on the team as you were able to eventually pay yourself more?
1: No, no. Uh, the founders uh, were not the best paid people on the team until after the Series B.
3: And how do people know what everyone else makes? Like, where do they get that information? How do it's they like see It's like
1: literally a Google Doc that everyone has access to.
3: <laughs> and that's, to the, that's today? Today. Today, and indefinitely. How many people now on the team?
1: Uh, 28 on the team, hopefully 29 as of tomorrow.
3: <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, there's someone in the audience who Brian is recruiting. Has an
1: active wonder offer.
3: Has an active wonder offer. Um, what was it like raising capital?
1: Brutal. Um, I mean, I think anyone who's thinking about raising in clean tech ought to just familiarize themselves with the NVCA data on how much money is raised into VC funds in various verticals. Um, and God bless um, these folks, um, Emily and the rest of her powerhouse colleagues on on having a clean test, clean tech specific fund. But uh, if you look from NVCA, how many? dollars are going from LPs, the folks that invest in venture firms, into clean tech-specific funds, it fell off a cliff in the late aughts and has never really recovered. And so what I would encourage folks to do and what has enabled our fundraising success as it is is basically doing everything you can to position yourself not as a clean tech company. Uh, We did a lot of work to make sure that we were comp to fintech companies um, and basically saying, hey, you know, we are a software-enabled commercial lender that happens to operate in this really exciting market if you take a look at the fundamentals and don't worry about the scar tissue you may have had in the late aughts. Um, And that was partially successful. But um, nonetheless... Having seen 175 companies in our portfolio when I was in VC, the numbers we had, the team we had, and the struggle we had fundraising, I think you can't help, and maybe I'm letting myself off the hook, but I don't. I think you can't help but recognize that it is still very hard for cleantech companies, solar companies, to raise VC.
0: Coming up, Brian talks about the darkest moments he faced while raising money. He actually sat in a dark room Just staring at the walls for a little while during a very uh, trying period. And he's also going to talk about his unique method of filtering investors who don't have a sense of humor. First, though, a quick word about a new innovative battery storage solution on the market, GE Reservoir. The GE Reservoir allows producers to store energy, transforming the possibilities of renewable power sources. GE's flexible modular energy storage solution provides up to 50% more solar energy sales while reducing construction time by 50%. The team within GE has worked hard to take their decades of experience in battery storage and systems design and put it together in a unique way that enables this modular solution to scale very quickly and cost-effectively. GE's Reservoir helps harness and store the power of solar energy so it's available even when the sun isn't shining. We all want that, don't we? With up to 15% extended battery life, Reservoir saves energy for when it is needed most. Whether it's raining, hailing, sleeting, or snowing, Reservoir helps keep the lights on. Find out more at ge.com slash energy storage. As you were raising... Did you ever
3: get close to having to shut the doors because you couldn't raise capital in time?
1: Um, I think that any good CEO tries to get the company as far as they can on the runway they have without playing too close to the vest about, you know, fume out date. And so we have never been in a position where we didn't know where the next payroll was coming from because I've always been thoughtful about that cushion. But each time that we've raised, we've had no more, I think, than three months of cash on the books.
3: Was that scary or did that just feel like that's the way it is? Both. <laughs> um, and for the the latest round, your series B, tell us about that. Like how many investors did you have to talk to in order to, to get the 12 mil?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, I still have to do some kind of series B blog post recap because that's something you have to do, apparently. Um, but we basically put together, and I would recommend this for any entrepreneurs um, thinking about fundraising, we put together this massive Google document of every firm, every partner, and every company that they had invested in that we thought was relevant to our fundraise. So in other words, we had a spreadsheet that said, um, you know, energy impact partners, right? Mosaic. Here's the partner who led it. Here's the date. Here's the link. And what we did with that is we sent that out to all of our advisors, all of our investors and said, do you know any of these people well enough to make a warm introduction? And what was important about that is we also left a big bolded column empty for who made the intro. And then we also had a tally at the top of that list as to how many intros our various advisors and investors had made. And through mapping out about 175 relevant investments and therefore relevant firms and relevant partners, we were able to get 128 warm introductions to the relevant partners with the context of, hey, I'm reaching out because I saw you invested in this. Does this look like what, um, what Wonder's up to? And those 128 warm intros turned into 66, I want to say, first meetings, actual meetings, not phone calls, like in-persons, turned into, I want to say, 24 venture firms in like data room style diligence, and then ultimately into, um, depending on how um, much credit you want to give to verbal term sheets, uh, like four or five term sheets at the end of the Series B.
3: I don't know if you remember this, but... um I remember seeing an early version of your deck when you were raising that seed round, and normally the last slide is the ask it 's like how much you 're raising and you know what you want, but their last slide, the only thing that was on the slide, and it was beautifully designed, but it just said, "Give us the money, Lebowski yeah. uh,
1: <laughs> so we actually that 's crazy you bring that up um, we we did it we did a meeting with uh, my, my my idea behind that, by the way, just if folks are interested, is that um, we wanted someone who had a sense of humor and also someone that was founder friendly. You know, we wanted someone who didn't think of this as like we're here and you're the big vaunted VC and we're here like groveling for your capital. Um, a, like I don't know how many folks have um, tried that in a dating scenario, but it's a really bad way to engage with someone if you want them to like you. <laughs> Um, and B, it just, um, I don't think it reflects the best way that, that, venture firms engage with companies these days. Um, we did though, we had a, we had an interesting experience. We reached out to, uh, Mark Schuster's firm, um, which is now called, uh, whatever it's called, but it used to be called GRP. And one of his partners got on the line with us and he said, I almost didn't take this call. And we're like, Oh, um, like w- what's going on? He said, slide 18. (laughs) So we're like, shit, right? We like jump forward to slide 18 and it's the give us the money Zabowski. And he's like, anyone who doesn't take this seriously is not of interest to us. And I was like, see guys, the filtering is working. This is fantastic. This guy is clearly a humorless asshole and we have just avoided having any kind of engagement or wasting time with him. So that slide actually ended up being pretty pretty successful.
3: It worked. (laughs) Um, what did this money allow you to do? Like, tell, us about, tell us about Wonder. Tell us about the product. What have you built? What has it enabled?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, the thing that we want to do, the thing that we think of as our you know, reason for being in the world is to close this gap between the way that commercial has grown um, and really, you know, SEIA calls it non-residential, which is wildly annoying. But, you know, it's commercial. It's light industrial. It's also this mush market I'm trying to get shums started if anyone wants to join in. If you want but to describe uh,
3: Mush for those who don't know, I was going to say, Shum, yeah.
1: municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals. So it's mm-hmm. basically like non-tax paying entities that might want to put up solar. Uh, but Mush, like Shum's better. Um, so like, in that market, you know, as, as we talked about in the intro, there's a, there's a $10 billion gap between what's happening annually in residential and what's happening in this market that's non-residential, these various categories annually. Right, that's ten billion dollars of solar that should be getting built if we could figure out how to make that market work as well as Resi. And the thing that has really made Resi turn so well, particularly on the capital market side, and you know anyone who looks at the history of solar knows that freeing up financing that's cheap and works for solar is really how you build more solar. Right, fundamentally, I mean, driving down the cost curve, please, like that is the most important thing. But you know, setting that aside, um, if you can bring good financing packages, the market seems to move. And in the resi space, FICO scores just make that incredibly easy. You know, you show up with someone with an iPad and they put in some details and suddenly you're, you're ready to rock, right? You can offer them, uh, a, an, you know, indicative terms on a PPA within a day. And one of the things that's always been hard in this space and where my background actually comes in is about 90% of U.S. entities that are not individuals. There's, you know, commercial entities or these nonprofits we were discussing they don't have a credit score. There's no FICO equivalent. Um, and it it really just gets down to the fact that we're all wildly similar. Like FICO, I'm sure folks imagine, is totally quantitative. There's no person looking at your stuff, right? Like we all have some credit card data. Maybe you have a car, maybe you have a mortgage. We're all the exact same legal entity. This is a very important thing. We can't have sub-entities. None of us have off-balance sheet assets. Um, you look at corporations, and they are just wildly more complex. And what that has always meant is that you have to have human beings looking at that data. And that, that alone, that idea that in in the residential market, 95% of the folks you might want to look to have a FICO score. And therefore you can literally just pay $6 and figure out their financing package. And on the commercial side, 90% of the time, you have to get three years of P and L. You have to look at their litigious history. You need to look at the past history of the business principles Um, You have to look at, you know, do they have a complex structure and what do those subentities do? Do they have one-time expenses? Are they reasonable or are they not? Um, So it's a vastly more complex process to analyze commercial entities. And so what we've been spending all of our time doing is basically making it as efficient as possible to evaluate these 90% of entities that don't have a FICO score and then structure solar financings around them that are really efficiently put together and executed and serviced. And so, um, you know, that is, I think, really clearly a job for software, right? If software does anything well, it takes kind of step function, relatively well understood processes and makes them a hell of a lot more efficient. Um, And that's what we've been up to. And what we've seen in the market is that for financing packages below about $2 million, and for folks to just contextualize that, you might make two to three percent kind of doing what we do. It's the same thing as a mortgage. It's like the origination fee, the closing fee, the contracting fee. So a two million dollar loan is actually worth to the person putting it together, kind of forty to sixty grand. Below that level, if you're not aggressively using software, you just can't, you literally can't do the work and make money. Like you will spend more. I've heard Billy say about early mosaic work, they were spending 50 grand to make 20. And that is that is the story, unless you're aggressively using software and kind of data automation tools. So um, we have been able to drive that minimum viable project size from two million to two hundred thousand. So we've literally ten x the efficiency of our process, and we can make money on a two hundred thousand dollar deal, making five grand, um, whereas a lot of folks can't even make money on a fifty grand um, you know revenue stream on a two million dollar deal. So that's the core of what we do.
3: What type of demand are you seeing?
1: So we'll see on a given representative month about $200 million of borrower demand. Um, so we're seeing about $2.5 billion, uh, touch south of that, um, of borrower demand annually. And it's, it's worth pointing out, perhaps um, for folks that might not appreciate this, um, there were literally people who didn't believe there was $2.5 billion of sub-2 megawatt demand out there. Um, so we obviously don't have hundred percent market share, but the fact that we're seeing, you know, more than $2 billion of demand to some extent validates the opportunity in the, you know, again, sub two megawatt market.
3: I ask everyone this, but how did you know how to do this?
1: No idea. Um, one of the things that I was lucky enough to learn at Bain was that well-supported, ambitious, curious, smart people who spend three to six months getting up a learning curve in a market, in my experience, are often better than people who have spent 10 to 20 years there without a deliberate learning process. So uh, our team is disproportionately made up of people who have not learned the lessons of how to fail in commercial solar, um, but instead are really smart people that we've asked to get up the learning curve quickly. And I am included in that group.
3: Um, What were your darkest moments?
1: Um, Raising the B was probably the hardest part of the whole thing, um, which I think might be counterintuitive to folks because the success likelihood was the highest of all the rounds. But the number of people that I would have let down had it not happened um, was bigger. And more than that, my conviction that if we could raise it, that we literally might have, I mean, I think we will have like a material impact on the carbon emission curve in the U S. Um, those two things combined just put a weight on that last fundraising that was different than the ones I had felt before.
3: How did that, what did it look like? Like what did it look like that it was hard?
1: Yeah. Um, so we sprinted into a, what I would call a first stage of fundraising um, into the, I guess the end of 2016. Um, and sorry, the end of 2017. And I had kind of deliberately burned myself out going into the holidays, which I don't recommend. That was very foolish, but probably the most indicative single day was a day in which, uh, over the holidays, my wife took our kids to a really awesome water park, and I sat in a dark room by myself all day,
3: working on the B.
1: No. Oh. No, literally just wallowing in self despair. Oh. <laughs> okay. I think I read. I think I read some sci-fi. I read a lot of sci-fi. Gotcha. I did not work.
3: Got it. Got it. Right. Um, I'm happy you closed the B. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Me too.
3: What lessons took the longest to learn?
1: Oh man. I think the lesson that was hard for all of the founders to learn was what you need to give really ambitious people who really give a shit about what you're doing um, in order for them to feel themselves like their sacrifice is worthwhile. So I think when you're asking people to join something partially because of what what they hope the collective can do there's an ownership there that has to be reflected in the way that you manage, in my experience. So what that means is giving what we call spheres of responsibility to people and allowing them to experiment and fail and learn with your baby, um, even if you might have suggestions that would differ.
3: It's not easy. Um, tell us about you, you all have about double the representation of women relative to the industry. How do you do that? And why do you do that?
1: One thing is that when women come in and apply, we give them extra consideration. So everyone should just do that. Um, we also try to be thoughtful about the policies that we implement and, um, And I don't know how well we do this, but trying to spread the word about some of those things. So I mentioned transparent comp. Um, That was actually driven by uh, the fact that women are paid, if I'm not mistaken, something like 20% less in similar roles, and that is largely driven by, um, from what the data can tell, um, a frequency and strength of negotiation, i.e. like squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, And so for us, Having a transparent comp policy um, allowed us to, A, be really deliberate about everyone making the exact same thing, irrespective of gender. Everyone makes the same thing when you're in the same level, full stop. So it doesn't matter what the consideration is. Um, The other thing is making sure that folks feel like they can just create a lot of value from wonder or for wonder and not have to rely on their negotiation skills or their um, ability to go out and get a competitive offer, because we literally don't negotiate. Um, so those are, uh, that's a policy that was driven, um, partially by a consideration of what is attractive to, um, female candidates. The other thing that we do that I think is, um, I think it's underutilized, but I think if you talk to people that work hard, they'll, they'll tell you this. In my experience, working a 50 hour week, when someone tells you exactly what the hours are going to be is... Two x harder than working a fifty hour week if I can fit it in where I where I need to, and so we have a um, a, a phrase around Wonder we call um, outputs not inputs, and the observation is that inputs are really easy to track. Like if you want to be lazy about figuring out who's doing a lot of work, like who's in their seat at eight a.m. and who's there when you leave, but I think we all know that some of those folks are like fucking around on like Yahoo Sports or like you know people or or whatever you like, um, and um, You know, I think what that does also is it really limits your ability to attract people that need some flexibility in their schedule and for reasons that are wrong and socially driven. And I would love to see change, but disproportionately women often have both child care and elder care fall on their shoulders And so being able to go to candidates and say, yeah, you can leave at three as long as you're back online at eight. Or really, we're not going to track. It's just we set ambitious goals. And if you're hitting your goals, then I know you're working really hard. You figure out how to get it done. And that's the inputs, not outputs. Um, Those two things, I think, have been material to us being able to kind of punch above our weight class and attracting women.
3: What is the percent of employees that are women?
1: I think it's 40% now.
3: Where's Wonder going to be in five years?
1: Well, if we're not putting billions of dollars into the, um, and I, I, get a, I get a little touchy when people call it the small commercial space, because if you look at the roof spaces in the country, the government has good data on this, it is the preponderance Like the wild majority of commercial spaces need systems below two megawatts, and even a majority need systems below a megawatt. So it's not that it's the small commercial space. It's that we're focused on this stupid large portion of commercial, and this is actually the bulk of the market. Um, All that said, uh, if we're not putting, you know, two, three billion or more into that space, um, I will consider uh, us having failed. Uh, One thing I'll say about that is we have a very like Muskian view, though, on um, enabling the market and not needing to be the one who captures all the value. Um, I'd be very, very, very happy to spark a rush into, quote unquote, small commercial um, and not be the one who ends up uh, taking the market. I, I would be disappointed in kind of a shallow, egotistical way, but our mission as a company is to is to make the commercial market work like the resi market. And if someone else can do that better, then we would cheer them.
3: Beyond just Wonder Capital, um, as you're alluding to, what's the future of energy, broadly speaking? <sighs>
1: Um, I guess I will just say that I think DG is wildly underestimated. Um, when we think about what the, what, what does energy infrastructure look like in, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, um, anyone who has studied any network theory knows that the way that the grid is currently designed is catastrophically fragile and stupid and shitty. And driven by the fact that there are just wild economies of scale to locating these monster hydrocarbon, predominantly facilities, out in places in which you have to have a centralized generation source, which means you have to have a relatively top-down centralized kind of distribution network. Um, As a network theorist, that is like the worst possible structure you could have. And just the idea that a place like Puerto Rico can go down as long as it went down, or even that rolling blackouts are a thing, is fucking cray. Like, if you sent, if the internet... It's the first time that's ever been said on what it takes. <laughs> if, if the internet worked that way, like, are you kidding me? Like, oh, you tried to route your email through that and it just failed. You got a day of email just gone. Like, no, right? Like, of course not. Of course we designed the internet to like, oh, it didn't reach that place. There's a check on that. Oh, let me try another route. Um, you know, New York's Manhattan City grid is another good example, right? Like, you want as many pl- ways for you to route things in a way that like leads to success. And the other thing that you really want if you're an economist and not a network theorist is you really like the trading associated with making lots and lots of players across like a liquid marketplace, right? Because like classic, like why is trade good? Well, it's because we're producing different things and consuming different things and we're a little better at some things, a little better at others. Like there is value in us being able to say, hey, I have an EV I just parked. that has a battery inside of it and I won't get into ev to g because that's a whole nother thing. But let's just presume that that works. Um, like I'm not going to use that and I'm willing to like, you know, give you 50% of my battery because you are running your dishwasher at night to say, like, whatever those things are, it is so obvious to me that a network in which you have lots of players providing both supply and demand um, is is wildly beneficial. I, I just think we have to move to something that looks like that. And when you start to see, I think when you start to see storage really come online in such a way that it's not just this relatively easy to predict Surge of extra energy between 10 and 2 that, that solar does or you know, in, at the nighttime in certain seasons for wind but becomes this really dynamic engine by which I hope the utilities understand that they can become something that looks like an ISP and become kind of the marketplace of energy the internet of energy is not the worst analogy and take a meaningful piece for doing that and remain relevant um, I think the first utility that figures that out is going to create just an enormous amount of value
3: excellent We're going to move into our high voltage round. I know you've been thinking a lot about this first question. Yes, Uh, We've been talking about this for at least a week now, (laughs) Uh, but I don't know the answer yet. Mm -mm. So Brian, yes. If you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why?
1: I would be a caterpillar because I just believe in improvement and transformation a lot. Like Where are you in the stage? Um of? definitely a caterpillar. That's why I didn't say butterfly.
3: <laughs> when do you think you'll be a butterfly? C B D. Um if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
1: Um, I would go into, um, I think I would go into uh, chemical engineering um, because I think that uh, one of the limitations that I have as a person who spent a lot of time in software is not really being able to move the needle on some of the really important um, kind of technological advances that we need to see. Um, and I'm not talking about Bill Gates, ridiculous, unreasonable shit that he does. Um, I'm talking about like deployment, right? Like how do you make batteries, um, like considerably, um, better as it relates to cycle times. Um, and I, I, I I also think the electrify everything movement is just outrageously important, right? I mean, to me, you solve climate change through making the electrons clean and then electrifying everything, and we're working on making the electrons clean. Uh, but there's so many interesting things around, you know, cement right? For example, it's just a monster source of emissions. There are a bunch of kind of industrial processes that I imagine a chemical engineer would have like the capability of of, of working on. And I find that all really fascinating. And I just don't have the, the chops to, to hang there. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, my mom and dad.
3: When have you failed?
1: A lot. Um, I mean... My most interesting failures to me are when I've given up on something because I didn't find it valid. Um, I, have a, I have a tenacity with things I care about. It's hard for me to be candid, to point to that many things as it relates to, to wonder. I certainly could point to a million small things, um, but um, I think w- I think folks should, should maybe spend a little more time evaluating whether their goals are the right goals um, I've gotten a lot of value from shedding goals and thereby failing, but failing somewhat deliberately. It's really not like I should figure out a way to answer that. That's, that's, um, a little, c- criticizes me a little bit more.
3: You can, you can think about it. What's something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
1: That people are rational.
3: <laughs> when are you your best self?
1: I am my best self when I'm working with our team members in a way that I feel like expands their capabilities and possibilities and they're really into. What's your worst trait? Um, I can be, I can be pretty, um, I can be really honest at times when it's not helpful to be honest. Uh, I also really enjoy speaking truth to power. And the combination of those two has created a few (laughs) uncomfortable situations. I I have, I have very directly told off to their partners, several VCs. Um, I told one of the largest families in the country by wealth to basically go fuck themselves. Um, so that's probably, that's probably my worst trait.
3: If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? My mom. Oh, when was the last time you were scared?
1: All the time. Um, One of the things that occurred to me recently is that there were times in which you didn't wake up in the morning and know that we're on a crazy, unsustainable path that will lead to the destruction of the future. And um, I wake up with that every day. Um, It's part of the reason I do what I do. So I've more or less been scared since I was informed of the state of the world.
3: To close, finish these sentences for me. Success is?
1: Having the greatest impact on the greatest number.
3: If I could have done one thing differently, I would have?
1: Had kids earlier.
3: How old were you when you had your kids?
1: 32 and 35.
3: How old did you want to be when you had them?
1: Younger. (laughs)
3: If the world knew me for one thing, it would be?
1: irascibility
3: I'm most proud of
1: I mean it's unfair to not say your boys but wonder (laughs) I mean one of them's six months old he doesn't do shit (laughs) he poops he eats he sleeps not even that well (laughs) what's his name his name is Ander
3: Ander one day you're gonna be listening to this (laughs) I hope not Last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is?
1: A really, really well-aligned, committed, and most importantly, transparent and open and communicative relationship with the founders of the early team, however you define that. That is the thing. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, but um, in venture, I got to see a lot of companies and whatever they say their failure reason was, most companies fail because leadership is not working together um, and doesn't trust each other. And that spreads through the company. And my greatest blessing and my best decision for Wonder, hands down, was um, our, my choice of co-founders and our early team. And we still have, um, I mean, my co-founders are obviously still there, but uh, we really haven't lost any one of the early team.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, with that, please give a big round of applause
0: for Brian Bersick. Thanks again to Emily Kirsch and Brian Bersick for that insightful conversation. If you're looking for more insight, more analysis on the markets that matter to you, Go become a member of GTM Squared. You know, I know many of you are trying to build your company, so you need the best analysis on the market, and, and, you know, GTM Squared can deliver it. So if you become a member of GTM Squared before the end of the year, you're going to get $50 off your membership by using the promo code PODCAST. Thanks for supporting good journalism. Thanks for supporting this podcast and supporting yourself and your team with the best market intelligence. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey.